Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast. For years, progressive PR executive Trevor Fitzgibbon worked alongside Media Matters and other smear groups. But when he ran afoul of the Democrat establishment's narratives, he became a victim of them. Now he's an authority on the smear and an expert at analyzing campaigns against high-profile targets. Today, we'll hear from him about Tucker Carlson, Julian Assange, the left-wing smear machine Media Matters, and beyond. You're going to love this conversation today. Well, it might make you mad, but at least you're going to find it interesting. I'm speaking with an insider in the world of the smear. Trevor Fitzgibbon was a public relations executive, a Bernie Sanders supporter, who represented people on issues that he felt truly mattered. I I think he called himself to me when I met him a true believer. He has a fascinating story of how he became subjected to the left-wing smear machine, which you'll hear about later. But he's become an authority on spotting and analyzing smears of others, organized smears, which is what he's going to weigh in on today. Here's Trevor Fitzgibbon. First of all, I'd love to get your take on what's happening with or to Tucker Carlson after what's happened at Fox News. Well, you know, it, it's it's nothing new. Um, Media Matters and uh, other organizations that have that that have been trained in the Media Matters. Uh, style of um, organizing campaigning and attacking um, they've been doing this for quite a while and um, you know we take a look at Glenn Beck and the Glenn Beck campaign was one of their first big real successful campaigns to try to get him off of Fox which was successful um, they, um, they they just run a really aggressive uh, ag- aggressive campaign to to uh, basically take t- taking the rules for radicals and putting it in action, where you freeze a target and you you alienate the target and you smear the target and um, dehumanize the target, and it's been very effective. Um, they have a strategy of. Uh, going after the advertisers um, of the target of a show and getting the advertisers to pull out their advertising so that it makes the, the target uh, much easier to, to be removed from uh, the public public space. And so they've been doing this for a long time and um, they've been doing it successfully. Uh, I think, as is with the case with Tucker Carlson, you know, there was there were different things at play. Um, it, it, it wasn't just the Media Matters campaign. There are other things going on, obviously. But I think it was the combination that really uh, that really did him in. Well, I think it's interesting. I'd love to get your take on this. I wrote about in my book, The Smear, one way to differentiate between a smear and just sort of legitimate criticism or attacks of somebody for something they did is the smear is really not about the thing they're attacking them for. They're really out for a larger purpose. And I suspect based on my experience, they, whoever they are, wanted Tucker Carlson off the 2024 election stage, because although he's not a Trump supporter, 
the reporting he does would tend to benefit Trump over Biden and hurt Biden. And there are powerful forces that absolutely wouldn't want Tucker Carlson on that influential platform for 2024, whatever the reasons. I mean, there may be some other complaints Fox had about him or he had about Fox, but I always look at the bigger picture and say, other people who have done similar things don't get the same treatment or don't lose their jobs. So you kind of can tell it's an organized smear effort when people suffer bigger consequences or blowback for something that's not as big as what other people have done with no blowback, no, no blowback. Well, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, to, to put it in context, um, really the expert on all of this and is um, Laird Wilcox um, and Laird Wilcox has written extensively and, and just studied this topic extensively. Um, and he's a, he's a professor. Uh, I forgot where, he might be at University of Iowa, but um, he wrote about ritual defamation. And, and, you know, I experienced ritual defamation. You've experienced ritual defamation. Tucker certainly has. But ritual defamation is different than just traditional defamation. It takes on a lot of what you just said. Like, it's not just, a, but it's not just a smear. It, it is, it has one purpose and one goal, and that is to dehumanize the target and to remove that person, essentially to kill the person um, in the court of public opinion, to cancel the person is, is what's popular, popularized now. Um, and the powers behind it are, are quite in, in, incredible. I mean, you, you, when you, when you take a look at, at the big picture and from the Ukraine war to COVID and, um, I mean, even self, like self, they, they admit it, the intelligence community where we're living in this, um, in an era now where they consider it post-factualism, a post-factual reality, where they believe that the facts don't matter, but their ability to create information operations, smear campaigns, um, uh, will, will, is, they believe is more powerful than what facts are. And their ability to create psyops, um, events uh, that occur, uh, pandemics that are created by our own defense department, um, and our own government, and then and then a vaccine created by uh, the defense, the Department of Defense. Like they believe they can do this um, as a way to control a lot of uh, public opinion. And so it's all kind of tied in together. You had a guy like Tucker who was speaking truth to power on that. And I mean, take you like, literally was the only anti-war voice in mainstream media that had a platform when it came to Ukraine. He was the only voice out there of a, you know, fairly significant standing. Um, same with COVID. He spoke out against COVID uh, repeatedly. Uh, in, in regards to, you know, he, he provided a platform for doctors, etc. So he was a threat to the whole, what, what I would call like the cabal, you know, he was a threat to it. And, um, you know, like, look, you have groups like Media Matters that have been working with, um, you know, they, they, they have meetings after meetings with, with, um, with Twitter, with Facebook, you know, I, 
I remember from my days working with these groups, David Brock and, and Media Matters, they worked so hard, you know, this is like 10 years ago, they worked so hard to, um, to get in with Twitter, to get in with Facebook, to set up meetings, etc., and to become part of their, uh, their kind of uh, process of quote, safeguarding the public forum. And when you have interest groups, whether it be on the right or the left, that have that type of power and control, you're going to create an environment where it's easy to take out a person like Tucker Carlson um, or myself <laughs> or you. Well, I'd like people to understand um, where you come from. You're still, as far as I know, a very progressive guy. I think you were a Bernie Sanders supporter, which probably is what got you in trouble because you supported Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton and you supported or working in the PR realm with people that I guess the Clinton types wouldn't like We're talking about, gosh, who are some of the names? Ed, the Edward Julian Schreiber, Assange. Julian Assange. Um, I think WikiLeaks was, was, you know, I think the work with WikiLeaks, uh, I think the work with Venezuela, uh, Edward Snowden, Manning, you know, it all kind of, I mean, I was kind of a Petri dish, <laughs> an open yeah. source Petri dish for the <laughs> enemy of enemies. Interestingly, you know, this is the case with quite a few journalists as well that come from the left-leaning side of things but have found some common ground with some of the conservative voices on these topics, you know, information control and so on, because I guess they've seen firsthand. I know in, in my Rolodex or what the equivalent of a Rolodex is, gosh, probably people don't even know what that is today that are under a certain age, but in my contact list, when I worked at CBS News, some years back, you were in my contact list under Media Matters. I don't know if you were doing contract work for them, in case people don't know, it's a left-wing propaganda group that's very effective and impactful at influencing the news, often in very dishonest ways in terms of the narratives they want to get out. And they're very pervasive. They have, you know, nonprofits and all kinds of connections and LLCs and websites that give the impression they're bigger than they are, but they are very influential. Were you working with them directly or were you just doing some work for them years ago? Um. I think we worked when I had my firm back then. Maybe had like a, a a contract with them for a few months to help put together some media trainings on media relations. Um, but but it's it didn't you know that that that's not the big thing. The big thing is that you know I was at the center of um, a number of progressive organizations from Move On Change. Uh, you know, move on kind of spawned a galaxy of online campaigning organizations. Um, and they all like, like all of those progressive groups worked with Media Matters to a certain extent. Um, Media Matters, you know, had their own priorities in regards to their agenda of taking out political targets, like, you know, on television, etc. Fox News, you know, just kind of a obsession with Fox. Um, but they would get other organizations, you know, let's say Tucker had come out or somebody had come out and said something 
um, that would be considered by some on the progressive end as racist. They would team up with color of change or uh, a, a kind of a civil rights type uh, netroots organization. And then they would partner together to run campaigns. Um, go and so it wasn't always just media matters. It was media matters along with another kind of interest group, um, another NGO organization. And so I worked with them. I, you know, I saw how effective they are. But I, I think that with the advent and the acceleration of social media, with bots, with um, uh, targeting, and then with their alliances on the inside of Twitter and Facebook and some of these social media platforms, they're literally able to destroy people's lives overnight. Um, when I was taken down, there were uh, there, and we can talk a little bit about that. When I was taken down, you know, based on discovery that we did um, through litigation, when I sued and 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 you know, I don't know, the person settled with me, but um, I, I like to consider it a total victory. Um, but based on the discovery we saw. And we got, um, you know, they were paid bots that were that were coming after me. So you had groups out there, companies or individuals like paying money for bots to echo the the ritual defamation or the smear to take you down. And then that affects the algorithms in Google, right? And so when you search for somebody's name, um, whether or not the person's been cleared of the allegations or not, the worst stuff comes up because of their ability to impact the algorithms using these social media channels. Trevor, when and, you say bots, are those robotic, you know, yeah. like programmed, or are there people, like how, how much of that is people-oriented or, you know, backed by real people that are acting in this capacity and how many are just automated? I don't know the percentage. I think a lot of stuff is automated now. I know with Media Matters, I mean, they would conduct these incredible trainings um, a couple of times a year where they would have volunteers um, come in from across the country and they would be trained on, you know, like how to target and run campaigns and take down your, your targets. And um, it was all predominantly, you know, whether it was Glenn Beck or, or uh, uh, Tucker or Hannity, they were, they would always do that. But you know, I got to tell you in full transparency, like, I spoke with uh, somebody from Fox about this. And um, one of the things that I came away from and, and concluded is that to a certain degree, those targets, um, they wanted it to continue. They liked the fight. Getting targeted by media matters was good for their ratings. It brought in more money. And so, because I was always really frustrated. I'm like, why aren't you all fighting back? Why aren't you filing lawsuits for tortious interference or for defamation or like, like you've got the, all the money in the world. Why don't you try? 
because there was just there was literally no litigation strategy. And I think, you know, whether or not Fox attorneys were under one, um, you know, they felt legally a different opinion than I would or other attorneys, that's fine. But the one thing that the left does that's that's so effective and, and that we've always done is, is um, you know, it's, it's death by a thousand cuts. Yep. You have to try everything in the playbook when you're going to battle and going to war. And you look at the litigation strategy against Fox News, the litigation strategy that was implemented um, against anybody who breathed the word about Seth Rich, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and their, their journalists that they had, they were allied with, I'm, I'm talking about Media Matters and the DNC. I mean, it's incredible. You have a guy, Andy Kroll, right, who used to be the DC Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone. He's out there selling his book on the, the right-wing conspiracy on Seth Rich, right? Um, and, and you know, they, there were some defamation lawsuits that Fox News lost on Seth Rich. But here, here it is, you know, a couple months after those suits have been, been, have been settled, we find out from the FBI that the FBI actually uh, actually has uh, 60,000 documents on Seth Rich. And had that information been known earlier, they wouldn't have won those lawsuits. And I know this is confusing and I don't mean to, I'm just trying to explain the intricacies of the litigation. That I, being I agree totally. So, so the attack plan seems to be to controversialize something that has legitimate points, but to find something to controversialize so none of it is discussed. And you look at January 6th, which I'm still researching, we'll have more stories on that coming up. Yes. Um, they can successfully controversialize the event so that the press becomes fearful to discuss the legitimate and factual, the legitimate questions and the factual parts of it. And for some reason, the media kind of just cowers and goes along with it. I argue that if 20 years ago, when these groups understood how to use social media and control it, we should have recognized, and if we had, this fakeness to the efforts to make everything, all of us live on social media and react to what they put on there, we should have been able to ignore that. Like our bosses and media, news media, should have been able to say, you know, chuckle if something comes up on social media that's not, says your story is not true when you know it is just give it no air and instead but, they respond to it and now they do, but Cheryl, but but here's the thing like i'd agree i kind of agree with you but but like here's the pushback on that right all you have to take is the hunter biden laptop story when you've got the corruption within the intelligence community and you have i don't know how many people signed that letter 20 50 whatever former intelligence mm -hmm. agency folks signing on to a letter that goes and going before Congress and, and stating that they think it's Russia propaganda, right? When they are at the highest levels of our intelligence community, that corrupted, right? It is difficult to get an editor of the Wall Street Journal or any news or producer, executive producer, to not take that as authority, right? Yes, but Trevor, 20 years ago, we were taught in journalism when stuff like that comes out, you're automatically 
skeptical in a healthy sense. You don't just publish this stuff as if it's true. We do now. You're right. But in journalism school, we, we were do now. if a letter like that came out, if you thought it was news, your job was to dig in a bit. You can report that and you should report who they work for and if they've been honest in the past and what the true facts are, where's the evidence. Like you don't just regurgitate. And we've started doing that. So it, it does have an impact. But again, if 20 years ago we we had just decided not to take propaganda that's handed to us and give it that kind of credence and have the normal journalistic distance, I think yeah. we could have controlled the control they have over the information landscape. And I suggested this at CBS. People have heard me say this to our lawyers when we started seeing this or these organized efforts by these multi-million and billion dollar companies to try to stop our stories and to censor and shape them. I said, we need a strategy because they're out outgunning us on the PR front. Our stories, we're just worried about getting the facts straight. They don't care about the facts and they've got all the power in spinning things afterwards if we don't devote any attention toward some kind of strategy that we're not always playing defense on, then we lose. And one more thing, then I'll let you react to this. When you say you don't know why Fox didn't litigate, I think there's conflict sometimes within a corporation that maybe they agree with, even at Fox News, they agree with some of the criticism of certain talent. But more importantly, I was told at CBS when I would be, maybe a story I would do would be directly, falsely you know, I'd be defamed. This happened with Dr. Paul Offit, who's a big vaccine industry insider who was treated as if he were an independent you yeah. know, guy, which he never was. And he lied in a um, after I did an article about conflicts of interest among these people and his connections to the vaccine industry. He gave an interview and told somebody that I'd never asked him for information or that he had provided all his funding sources, which is false. And I had the um, email chain showing that I had asked him very nicely. He even said I threatened him and I had the whole email chain. Well, the publication issued a correction to what Offit had told them, you know, and an apology to me after kind of smearing me and publishing his false story about what had happened. But CBS didn't want to do anything about it. I remember saying to the lawyers before I contacted the publication, I said, this is so clear cut. I said, I understand we don't want to go after every Tom, Dick and Harry that says something false about our stories. But when you have something so clear cut, once in a while, shouldn't we make a statement and defend ourselves? And they did not want to. I mean, I'm not even talking about a lawsuit. They didn't want to make a publication. They just feel like, and, and the answer they gave to me was, well, we're a free speech, Fourth Amendment industry, and we don't want to go after other people. And I'm like, that's not a good idea when they're doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I... I I didn't know that, Cheryl. That's incredible. I mean, I um, it, it, there's one person that that the public should know of. It's a guy named Joel Harding, who's the mastermind of information operations, and um, he helped, as I understand, to create the information operation that came out of Ukraine, uh, alleging Russian hacking. And it started with him. Um, he he works. Uh, he consults for Rand Corporation quite a bit, uh, and he's running the Ukraine uh, information operation right now. Um, but when you have information operations so powerful that it will get people who were virtually best friends, right, to not ever want to talk to them each other again. That's a powerful information operation. If you would have told me 
that compared to Biden and Trump, that we would be closer to a thermonuclear war under a Biden administration than under a traditional Republican or a Trump administration? I would have thought you were crazy. But here we are. Yeah. And what, what's more is the, 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 the power of these information operations and the smear campaigns that are being run of these of these of these uh, events these wars like in ukraine or in covid i mean you're you're blacklisted you 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 are you are destroyed you are um you look at how many doctors covid treating doctors out there peter mccullough robert malone like they, they're getting their license pull licenses pulled but they are also fighting back like mccullough and and and, and robert malone um, but Ukraine is, is, it is insane. I, in 2003, I was one of the key folks, um, and this isn't trying to toot my own horn, but like, I was one of the leaders from the PR perspective on the March on Washington, where we had hundreds of thousands of, of people, mainly Democrats, speaking out against the run up to the war in Iraq. Remember that? There's like 200,000, 300,000 people in D.C. Yeah. Okay. I just tried to head up the at the Lincoln Memorial of uh, protesters against the NATO proxy war happening in Ukraine, right? And literally with a message of, you know, whether or not you're for Ukraine or Russia, like that doesn't matter. We just want a pathway to peace. The same sentiment and, and literally the same words that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. spoke of after the Cuban Missile Crisis at his incredible speech at American University in wanting to have a pathway to peace. And the only people there were like very far leftists and libertarians, right? Code Pink wouldn't even come. The anti-war movement in the U.S. when it comes to this war right now, and we're closer to a nuclear war than we ever were with Iraq, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, there is no anti-war movement in this country. Well, interesting like, how when Trump was asked, um, actually this woman, I won't call her a journalist based on the town hall performance she gave. She was debating Donald Trump with a lot of misinform misinformation on her side. She <laughs> wanted him to... Clearly, she was prodding him to say he wanted Ukraine to win the war. And he gave this what I thought was a really rational answer. He gave the perfect answer. He said he wanted people to stop getting killed. He didn't think about it in terms of which country right. loses. And I think a lot of people out there feel that way. But, she, you know, that was treated like it was crazy talk. You're right. If you don't she, say He gave the, the word, perfect answer. Yeah. And she was so pissed because she wanted she was trying to bait him and bait him and he wouldn't take the bait. I loved it. And now here we have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And, and I got to tell you, I mean, again, like I worked with MoveOn.org for years and years. And like their, their first open primaries they did uh, when Howard Dean gave his scream, this famous scream he did um, when, when, when yeah. uh, you know, all of this stuff. The idea that MoveOn has just said we're not going to have a primary. <laughs> we're just going to endorse Biden is insane to me so my, like, my thought is robert f kennedy jr is to the democrat establishment what trump is to the republican establishment and on top of that 
because he's got Big Pharma's number. He's probably the most educated po political figure out there when it comes to, you know, vaccines and all the COVID stuff. That makes him such a threat to all the people that were controlling these narratives. Um, what are your thoughts about where he finds his support and does he find support in the Democrat Party as he seeks the presidential well, nomination? In full transparency, I am working with uh, some other folks. We're actually putting a super PAC together to support him uh, and, and other candidates that are like-minded. Um, so I'm a big Robert F. Kennedy uh, Jr. supporter, uh, and I worked with him quite a bit uh, when with Waterkeeper and his environmental litigation that he did suing mining companies that were killing people in West Virginia because of toxic waste. And, and uh, I'm a huge fan. I think he's incredible. Um, and I think that uh, there's a reason why the DNC won't allow him on to, to debate Biden. And that is because I think they're petrified. Because if you had the two of them and Marianne Williamson on stage together, but I think that would really be them doing um, of, of Biden. I don't know. I mean, it's going to depend. I mean, right now there are all these petitions out there to the DNC demanding that they open the debates to everybody and have a, you know, a democratic process, which is what our party used to stand for. <laughs> but uh, it's going to be interesting to see if Biden's numbers continue to crater and Kennedy's continue to rise despite being black media outlets. It's going to be interesting to see um, to see what's going to happen because at some point, if it goes the way I kind of think it might, which I'm wrong all the time, so maybe this won't happen. But if Biden's numbers continue to kind of crater and Kennedy's rise and Trump is the nominee and the heads-to-head -head numbers between Biden and Trump continue to show Trump killing them. Um, I think that RFK has a case that can that he, if this turns out the way I think it might, he can point to being able to peel off enough of those disaffected Trump voters to have a real coalition that can win the White House. And if Democratic pollsters and strategists really start to see that, it could it could change the tide a little bit. But maybe this is all wishful thinking. Well, that's assuming the pharmaceutical industry, which I think is really the most critical concern for Kennedy right now. Um, they do not want him. No, I know. It's worse than they've ever wanted anybody not in office, except perhaps Donald Trump they worried about at the time. But you know, I think that's probably his biggest obstacle because everything else um, he's in line with, you know, thinking of a lot of traditional Democrats and actually with a lot of his pharmaceutical thoughts are in line with a lot of ordinary Americans, but not the power brokers in the Democrat or Republican parties. Do you have um, a few more minutes? Because if you do, I'd like to keep you a little bit longer. I love hearing your reflections on all this stuff. Sure. Much more after a short break. When I speak to Trump or Clinton or Bernie Sanders or Robert F. Kennedy Jr., these aren't endorsements. These are just sort of thoughts of what I know. 
boy, he is a brave guy and a committed guy. And there's something to be said for whether it's Trump or Kennedy that move forward with really what they think and believe in, despite the criticism and the perils that come with it. Because Kennedy certainly, there's nothing in it for him to do what he's done, going after the truth about pharmaceutical and vaccine issues all these years. It's, he's really been smeared mercilessly. And that's someone who's committed to something he, he cares deeply about. You got you to gotta really give that to him. Yeah, I, t- I mean, I totally agree, and not, <laughs> and let's not also forget the fact that his father and you know uncle were assassinated, right? So it's it's when 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 they were, you know, in in, in office. So he's incredibly brave. Um, I, I have so much admiration for him. Um, you know, I I think that. Similar to Assange, um, you know, Julian, in one of Julian's last public speeches, he talked about the, um, what was it called? Uh, the gift of being accused, the, 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 the beauty of being accused. And that is that when, uh, when you get everything thrown at you and all the attacks uh that they can give to you and you withstand that it kind of makes you really date really dangerous as you've been smeared so badly much the way kennedy has and certainly assange has that it it brings with it kind of a freedom uh and uh and a gift and um and i think that kennedy kind of has that same uh outlook on life that that Julian does. I mean, Julian's in a much different position now in, in Belmarsh, but I see that commonality between the two. And it's really, it's really admirable. Um, because he's ready to go, he'll take on anybody. And here's the thing. Like the reason they don't want him on. Right. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they, they keep saying it's propaganda, it's misinformation, because they can't debate him, right? Because he's never lost a lawsuit on on the vaccines, right? He they 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 they, they don't have any answer for him, and well, he, so he, he told me the um the hostess who interviewed him on or who debated him on the town hall from CNN. No, I'm sorry, this is somebody different. Someone who interviewed him from ABC, um, and mm-hmm. asked him, he says misled about the tone of the interview and acted like they were going to be fair. And of course called him a vaccine misinformationist, which isn't true by the way. And then asked him a question to which he said about vaccines. He gave scientific, good, fulsome answer that they cut out (laughs) when, when they played it. And you talk about because they can't debate him, he's clearly more well-informed than the journalists asking him these questions. And then because he sounds so rational the information controllers don't want people to hear these rational answers, so they simply cut it out. And that should make people at home listening really suspect when when they don't even want you to hear for yourself what someone says. That's that's a really five five alarm fire in terms of it should set off something in you that says maybe that person's onto something that they don't want you to to hear anything about. 
I agree, and but but it's not just. I mean, it's the media, but it's 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 the power of these information ops. It's the power of money. When you look at how much big pharma and Pfizer like spends on advertising on on these networks, it is unbelievable. I mean, if we ban something, ban ban big pharma from being allowed to advertise, um, so we don't have that influence. But but then again, they'd say that's not free speech. So I, it's a real. It's a real tough situation. Um, I think, though, that this presidential election is going to be really interesting to see the rise in the power of independent media. You know, and I, I don't know. Would you call yourself independent media? Well, you're with you're with Just News and Sinclair. I guess you're not independent, but you have the same integrity of an independent journalist, right? Well, I do. I do kind of, you know, when people ask, I think they kind of consider me independent because I'm no longer my shows on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, but we're not, we own those stations. I'm not under the thumb of any of those networks. And I right. think it does qualify as a level of independence, although not like Len Greenwald, who's left his own organization when they were censoring his <coughs> reporting. And now he's on Substack. Not quite the same, but definitely, you know, I don't and, have direct pharmaceutical advertisers at a national level on my show the way it works, which allows us to keep independent yeah. that others others don't have. You know, and I worked, Glenn was my client when he started with Omidyar, um, when he started uh, The Intercept. And because I was helping him to get out Snowden's disclosures and The Intercept was created to help do that as well and so to see what kind of went down after the hunter biden i mean it's well to it's remind incredible. people he he did his own investigation on hunter biden and his yeah. own publication that he created with an editorial i guess board and process wouldn't publish the piece and he left over that yeah you people like you and i'm not trying to kiss up but people like you blair Bogan, glenn greenwald matt taibbi like I have so much respect. Like you guys are the heroes, literally. There's not a lot left, but I'm hoping that you all can kind of uh, spur a new generation of independent journalists with the same, you know, with, with solid integrity as well. Because, um, I mean, we gotta we gotta challenge these guys because so many much of the mainstream media is just bought and paid for by big pharma by the intelligence community i mean the democratic party if if i if you would have told me that the democratic party would now stand for it's the party um against free speech and and pro-war like literally in 2003 if somebody was like it would have it'd be nuts it doesn't make sense well that that reminds me and i'd love to hear what you think about this i'm writing another book for harper collins and my editor asked the question because it's centered on the co-opting of science i've reported quite a bit on that but there will be some new stuff um, in this new book about how science has taken over has been taken over but he asked me he's like because you may never know the answer to this question but how did the left and a lot of people I work with come from a left-leaning viewpoint. He said, how did they go from being the ones that would have been against big pharma and for freedom for your bodies and all of that to being wholly in the camp 
of big pharma? Like when and how did that and why did that switch occur? Do you have any thoughts about that? Because that happened in a pretty short period of time. You know, I talked to um, I, I talked to a, a friend of mine uh, who's a great guy, Dr. Pierre Corey, you know, who is a Democrat, right? Who helped bankroll the uh, Stacey Abrams campaign in Georgia. You know, they they gone after his license because he dared speak out against the COVID vaccine. Uh, and, and they consider him a right winger, right? It's just, it's ludicrous. Um, but he's a hardcore Democrat. But we were talking about it. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of, um, you know, the Democratic Party has been a party that's always, um, from civil rights to, you know, always kind of relied on government to, and, and considered government uh, kind of, of the truth teller or the the on the side of them right when it comes to battle civil rights battles from the past women's equality etc mm -hmm. and i think there i think there was um i think there is a um a, a fundamental belief that that you know vaccines it's very much by the numbers right i because i get into these debates with my friends that that are are on the other side um when it comes to the vaccine uh because they're like look you know it it's clearly saved more lives than it's harmed and then i'm just i look at like maddie de Garay, the incredible 13 year old girl who signed up for the pfizer trial um and after her second jab is bedridden Right. And I and I say to my so I say to my my friends who I'm in a debate with, I'm like, what if this was your child? What would you do? Would you not fight like hell to figure out what's happened? Um, there, there are some real inconsistencies regarding a moral code of the party that I have always been a part of, which is the Democratic Party in regards to where things are now. We've always been for. Let me just say this, Cheryl, for equality, fair and equal. But how come we're okay with vaccine companies not having, you know, not having to be held liable if they kill somebody? Which right? is, a, is a unique arrangement nobody else that I know of has, and people don't ask often enough about that. And I, I'm wondering what also is the Media Matters connection, because, of course, they are on as a left-leaning propaganda group, you know where they stand on basic social issues and so on. But right. in addition to that, years ago, they also were smearing people who were factually reporting on vaccines, whether it was scientists or reporters. And there were more reporters doing it, you know, 15 years ago than there are now. So I'm like, what is the, what was the connection between Media Matters, besides funding sources like George Soros, what is their interest in all the left-leaning causes, and by the way, they're, they're part of the vaccine cult, or I don't know if they're true believers or they're acting on behalf of clients or what? You know, I don't know. That, it's a really good question. I can tell you this, and this is this is unbelievable, but uh, Steve Kirsch, one of my clients, uh, who's a brilliant uh, guy, went to MIT, is you know, a bunch of different degrees and um, he's a Silicon Valley kind of entrepreneur and he runs the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation. 
he's a lifelong Democrat. He has given more than 20 million to Democrats throughout his life. He can't get a phone call back from a Democratic member of Congress right now because of his position on the vaccine, on the COVID vaccine. But do you know that he was one of the founding investors in Media Matters? No, back I when did not know. Yes. And, uh, you know, Angelo Caruso, uh, <laughs> I saw the emails back and forth between them because Steve almost sued him because they had written an article defaming uh, defaming Kirsch when he was on uh, Tucker. Uh, it happened to be when Tucker was off, but, you know, when Kirsch just went on the air and said the vaccine's killing people. And, um, and Angelo and Media Matters ran a hit piece on Steve Kirsch, I think not realizing who he was. Oh my God. <laughs> and Steve had to remind them that actually he was one of the founding investors of Media Matters, but that they've lost their way. Wow, that's so interesting. Interesting inside baseball there. And, and here's the thing that's so frustrating is it's like, I, I mean, honest to God, Cheryl, like, I, I don't even know, I don't believe this is a left right thing anymore. I, I, I just more kind of like, there are people who support sovereignty, and I'm one of them. And, 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 you know, I, I am I don't want to say like against globalism, but I mean, I, I guess I am, but like, I don't think all people, I don't think that all elements of globalism are evil, right? But there is a cabal, certainly, and I see it more profoundly today than I ever have. Of it doesn't matter what party you are, there are elites that are wanting to kind of dictate and control everything right now. And, um, and that's what, I'm fighting against, and I just happen to align myself a lot more now with folks who are conservative, who can kind of see through this stuff. That that that. But I'm still for a woman's right to choose. I'm still totally pro environment. You know, um, I just I want the truth. And and if winger, <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy to me. Well, let's talk if you if you don't mind a bit about Julian Assange. Yes. For people, I know this sounds crazy, but it's been years. Can you give a one paragraph summary of who Julian Assange is? And then let's talk about what's going on with him today and what's hap what happened to him. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so Julian Assange is the uh, founder and publisher of WikiLeaks. And um you know, WikiLeaks uh, is a, 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 a journalistic uh, kind of the fifth estate that um, has published some of the most incredibly influential and profoundly important uh, documents uh, in the world, in world history, that they believe that 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 transparency uh is is how you need to go about your life and governments need to be held in check and uh he is literally sitting in belmarsh prison now dying uh because he published the truth and where's belmarsh prison it's in england okay um he's from australia he's an editor publisher activist he founded wikileaks in 2006 so that's when it started. Um, 
one of my very first clients I had was then Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, who was a, a, an army intelligence officer serving in Iraq, who uh, allegedly leaked, you know, provided the, the leak of the Iraq war logs to Assange and WikiLeaks um, that, you know, documented how many civilians actually were killed in Iraq, uh, the use of torture in Iraq. Um, the famous thing, the first thing they were really famously known for was the collateral murder video that showed a U.S. Apache helicopter gunning down um, who they thought were terrorists, but a, a group of uh, Iraqis, including two Reuters journalists. Um, that went viral. That was shown around the world. And so they're an organization that relies on whistleblowers who uh, anonymously most of the time um, through safe mechanisms, um, drop boxes and such are able to get critical information out to the public in the public. And then if WikiLeaks, you know, vets it, verifies it, and if it's true, we'll publish it. Um, Hillary Clinton actually praised WikiLeaks and credited WikiLeaks for helping to trigger the Arab Spring. Back, well, I, mean, back. I mean, the left, from what I remember, the left during this stuff about the Iraq war and all liked WikiLeaks and it all turned around. Fast forward to you can explain this was it 2016 ish when WikiLeaks started publishing internal Democrat National Committee documents, Democratic National Committee documents that showed all kinds of kind of internal scandals. And well, it showed how the Clinton campaign and the DNC coordinated to take out Bernie Sanders. So that's what they exposed. And um, there were members of Congress, uh, the chair of the, 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 DN, of the DNC was forced to resign, um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, it was a huge scandal. It, it's an embarrassment to the party. And essentially what you had was a primary election uh, on the Democratic side that in my opinion was null and void considering you had so many so many Democratic voters were completely, you know, manipulated by what was supposed to be a neutral party, the DNC and the Clinton campaign, um, so that Hillary could get the nomination. And then, of course, the stuff comes out, right? And what is the very first thing that the Clinton campaign decides to do with their friends in the intelligence community is claim it's Russian hacking. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's really fascinating real quick, Cheryl, just as an aside, you know, I always kind of viewed the, the, that information op on Russia, you know, Russian hacking, Russian hacking, Russian hacking, which, you know, has turned out to not be true. They, they weren't WikiLeaks source. And, um, I was always thinking, you know, how interesting that that information operation was started by Joel Harding out of Ukraine. And, it, it, and when I look now to where we are, I almost feel like perhaps one of the reasons why they blamed Russia, why the Clinton campaign did and why, again, the cabal wanted to blame Russia is because they wanted to start early on the, the souring in the public's mind of Russia and the poisoning of Russia in the public's mind 
so that we could be at the point that we're at right now? Well, I would argue you're, I would say yes. And um, maybe I'll put it on my homepage at CherylAxon.com. But I have sort of a timeline of Ukraine's involvement in the 2016 election, as well as the generating of a lot of the smears against Donald Trump, meeting with the DNC, meeting yeah. with the Ukrainian um, ambassador, you know, the ambassador and the diplomats here in the U.S., all this stuff, these connections were going on, you know, as Trump was running for president. And then another complicated, maybe I'll put this on the homepage, too, um, after this podcast. If you follow the money, traditionally, um, I argue whenever Congress is talking about foreign issues on the front front and center, it's often because they're being lobbied. I mean, many countries aren't being talked about when others are, and it's because they hire foreign agents, which is legal here in the U.S., sometimes former congressmen, to make their case. The Russians do it. Ukraine does it. Well, Ukraine's had a great deal of spike in activity of hiring their foreign agents to lobby for their causes and building up to the 2016 election and building up to them wanting to get their interests front and center. And I think Democrats were typically working more often for the Ukrainians and Absolutely. Republicans were typically more often working for, for the Russians. And Politico, in a really insightful article some years ago, said that this is a, the, what you hear between Russia and Ukraine is sort of a proxy war um, th this lobbying that's going on in the U.S. is a proxy for their fighting in foreign ground. You know, they're fighting a PR battle here using their lobbyists and using political figures here the same way they're fighting each other directly, um, you know, on foreign soil. I don't know if that's too much I just threw out there. You catching? No, I, I, I think you're right on. And and um, I mean, the the Ukrainian, the diaspora here in, in the United States, it's just it's, it's incredible how powerful they are. And it's something that, you know, that would be a really good investigative piece for you to do um, or consider I, who am I to tell you what to do. But like no one's really done an in-depth look at the power and, and the connections of Ukraine to the Clinton campaign, um, to her staff, to, to the DNC. I mean, it is remarkable. Well, some of that will be in the timeline that I've made that I will repost, but you're right. And so... What's the status? So Julian Assange was eventually charged in his absence with what or what what happened to him? Yeah. So, OK, so 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 Assange. Um, Assange publishes like incredible, you know, WikiLeaks gets out these incredible documents, you know, uh, on the Iraq war, State Department uh, leaks, uh, uh, a number of uh, the Afghanistan war logs. Um, uh, Guantanamo files, like incredible information that completely rocks the U.S. and embarrasses the U.S. Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, completely flipped out. Um, her uh, chief of staff, P.J. Crowley, is fired uh, for his criticism of how the military was treating Manning, who was the, the, the source who was being held in prison. He was my client at, at Quantico being stripped naked every night and, 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 and um, uh, in front of all of the other prisoners and, you know, just no due process whatsoever. Um, so WikiLeaks has always been a thorn on the side to the Clinton, the, the, the Clinton apparatus, the Clinton machine, if you will, and to Obama. Um, and, uh, Assange 
you know, blew this stuff up and immediately, you know, was falsely accused by two women of rape in Sweden. Uh, his right hand, Jacob Applebaum, was falsely accused of rape as well here in the United States. Uh, I was falsely accused of, of the same thing uh, here in the United States. And, but, I'll, and I'll I was, none of those charges, none of nothing ever came of any of that. But it was. Yeah, it was all it was all smears. It was all smears like, you know, all three of us. No one was charged. Um, uh, the the uh, allegations were were knocked down. Um, but all three of us were branded in the most negative possible way in the media, in the national media. So when he was accused, um, Sweden, it was two women from Sweden, when he had been over in Sweden, they accused him of, of rape. And um, Sweden, he was back to the UK and Sweden wanted to extradite him. Uh, they, he, he hadn't been charged with it, but they wanted to extradite him just for questioning. And he knew what what the deal was. He knew it was you know these charges these or the, these allegations were ridiculous. And WikiLeaks said no. But if you'd like to send somebody over, you know, to the to to the UK, we're more than happy to answer any questions that you have. Well, that wasn't good enough. And Sweden, the US, and the UK governments orchestrated this this um, this this uh, strategy this kind of criminal strategy where um, where Assange ended up going to the Ecuadorian embassy and getting uh, political asylum there so that he was because he knew and at the time the Ecuadorian president was in support of Assange and free speech, etc. So he's there. He was there for years. Um, and then there was a change politically in Ecuador and uh, you know, Ecuador essentially sold Assange to uh, the Trump administration at that time, and they went and they got him. And um, and there was a deal cut, and uh, he was taken to Belmarsh Prison uh, for jumping bail back during that Swedish those allegations that were false that they have since since said are they dropped that whole thing in sweden because it was it was bs and um assange always said like look you know i'm happy to answer questions but i'm not going to go to sweden and i'm not going to be extradited to the united states because i know that's where that this is headed and it turns out that's where this was headed and so he has lost his appeals uh to not be extradited he has one more attempt now um and if he loses he's going to be extradited to the united states where he will spend the rest of his life in prison for literally publishing factual documents and just to state how big of a deal this is if the u.s government can prosecute a foreign journalist for publishing factual documents i don't believe any journalist is safe well, and the irony that we look at the false Russia collusion stuff that was generated by our intelligence community and the media and political party folks, and nothing happens to them. I mean, it's just so ironic. I'm not saying they should be put in prison for that because I'm not sure what what constitutes as a crime. It's clearly wrong and unethical and all of that. But I'm just saying how hard they go after someone who published factual information 
but nothing happens to people consistently publishing false information for nefarious reasons. It's just so ironic. Assange has won numerous journalistic awards um, uh, for his work. And there is a true international campaign happening right now to save him and to get him freed. Um, and uh, yeah, he has two small children. Uh, Stella is his wife and she's incredible. Um, you have people such as Daniel Ellsberg, famous whistleblowers from the past who did the Pentagon Papers, from Edward Snowden to Daniel Ellsberg, to now the New York Times editorial boards and the Washington Post and USA Today and Wall Street Journal all coming out that he should not be extradited. He should be freed. Um, but, you know, I, I we're dealing with an administration with the Biden mission. I just don't think they care. They're going to do whatever they want to do. And I feel like they've got, they feel as though they have the power to do whatever they want to do. Trevor, it's so interesting talking to you and hearing about all this stuff and your insights and reflections on this information landscape we're finding ourselves in today. Um, thank you and good luck to you. And thank you for taking on clients who other people don't want now. I mean, you've really done good works. Um, helping people out from a public relations standpoint who are having these smears happen to them and have, have nobody to turn to. So I know that's greatly appreciated. And I thank you too, for being, uh, you know, one of the, the few journalists who hasn't lost their commitment to objectivity and to true journalism and, and telling the truth. So all credit to you. Thank you so much. You might be curious what happened to Trevor Fitzgibbon in that smear that he was referring to. Well, to fill in some blanks, I'm going to play for you a report that I did on that on my TV program, Full Measure, back in 2018. What an incredible story. You'll hear that right after a short break. From the fall of Hollywood's Harvey Weinstein to the political demise of New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, there's been no shortage of sexual abuse allegations against famous men. The Me Too movement has liberated women to talk about long-tolerated misconduct. But it's also led to whispers about the gray area between improper harassment and criminal assault, and questions about whether it's now easier for people to get smeared by unproven or even false allegations. Today's cover story is Shades of Gray. We've got two believable stories. You've got, you can take anybody down. Trevor Fitzgibbon claims it happened to him. His story begins in December 2015 when he ran his own progressive PR firm and got a fateful call from his company's vice president. Who said, we have a problem, and I said, what's wrong? He said, well, in the past 48 hours, our head of HR um, has gotten six phone calls all accusing you of sexual harassment. And my heart kind of fell. Before that call, Fitzgibbon had angered some fellow liberals for his support of Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton and for representing clients connected to WikiLeaks. He represented Bradley Manning, who passed classified materials to WikiLeaks. Edward Snowden, the government whistleblower WikiLeaks once helped. The journalist Snowden leaked to Glenn Greenwald. And he represented WikiLeaks and its founder, Julian Assange. The WikiLeaks connection will come into play later. Fitzgibbon says after the HR phone call, before he even knew who his accusers were, they had gone to the national press. 
And it's really interesting to see the Huffington Post because the first day it was harassment. A few hours later, it was assault. And then it gets spun into rape culture. Inside of two weeks, Fitzgibbon's staff had turned on him, his company shut down. With help from feminist lawyer Gloria Allred, three women filed criminal complaints. One of them, attorney Jesslyn Raddick, claimed Fitzgibbon touched her breast against her will. Then days later, when she met up with him at a hotel, raped her. It was 100% consensual. So you did have sexual relations with her? We, yes. But it was 100% consensual. Here's where shades of gray color the picture. Fitzgibbon admits to inappropriate behavior toward female employees and to cheating on his wife with Raddick, but nothing criminal. Evidence he gave prosecutors included friendly sexual text messages and photos allegedly sent by Raddick before and after the alleged assaults. Text messages, photos that she sent me after the first alleged assault took place, and then afterwards being very happy. After reviewing the text messages and conducting a lengthy investigation, prosecutors declined to file criminal charges. So for a year, you lived under the cloud of possible prosecution for rape. Yes. And what happened in that time frame to you? I couldn't defend myself in the press. I was vilified in the national media and on social media. And the accusers and whatever political machine came after me used it to poison the water to make it almost impossible for me to get work. You lost your business. I lost my business, uh, I lost my home. This is, this is the worst case scenario. Attorney Nicole Smith defends companies against sexual harassment claims and isn't connected to Fitzgibbon's case. She says the current environment can breed confusion and even false allegations. The Me Too movement is phenomenal, but it also is a uh, catchphrase for conduct that really um, is every scope of any kind of allegation from a slight that someone might feel that they had been disrespected to actual criminal conduct. So couching all of that conduct in one term is difficult than when you try and unravel individual claims. Some victims' advocates say accusers should automatically be believed. The recent conviction of entertainer Bill Cosby for allegations that were 14 years old seemed to make the case, but it's not always cut and dry. Are you finding that in this environment of women should be believed, that there is a downside. So often in these cases, I think what we're faced with is it's a he said, she said thing. There's not a lot of witnesses, if any, ever present. So to say that you're just always gonna believe the woman really doesn't get us anywhere. It may also open the possibility that accusations can be weaponized to smear a target for hidden motives. Fitzgibbon began to suspect he was the target of a smear right after it was announced he wouldn't be charged, yet he was attacked in a national press release. And that press release was of a letter signed by 72 national organizations pledging to never hire me or work with me again. What'd you think of when you saw that? It was one of the first times that I realized uh, 
that something else is at play. He'd sold his house, was split from his wife and children, including infant twins, and was too discredited to find work. Fitzgibbon now thinks powerful people may have come after him because of his PR work for enemies of the mainstream Democratic Party and the state, including WikiLeaks. In 2016, WikiLeaks published embarrassing insider emails of Hillary Clinton officials and the Democratic National Committee. And WikiLeaks was accused of working with Russia and being pro-Trump. There's little doubt there are powerful efforts to smear WikiLeaks and its supporters. Government contractors circulated this dossier in 2010, a wide-ranging strategy to combat the WikiLeaks threat, to sabotage or discredit WikiLeaks supporters using social media exploitation and disinformation. This is an internal yeah. PR sort of type document on... It shows the photos and the names of individuals that were supportive of WikiLeaks or worked with WikiLeaks. And the PR document specifically discussed going after these people, Ways to discredit, them. to target, to smear them. Several targets were Fitzgibbon's clients. Two were discredited by sex claims alleged in the media, but never prosecuted, just like Fitzgibbon. WikiLeaks Assange and a key associate, Jacob Applebaum. With Assange, two women told a journalist that consensual sex with him when he was in Sweden for a speech turned into rape. A rape investigation hung over his head for seven years before it was dropped last year. Anonymous accusers started a website to publicly accuse Applebaum of groping and rape. He was forced out of his job, but also never charged. In the end, a smear campaign can often take advantage of the uncertainty surrounding a case of he said, she said. And that's the problem. Fitzgibbon asked a lawyer's disciplinary body to punish Raddick for alleged false allegations. They declined, saying the question was close, but the truth about what occurred in private is sometimes hard to prove. Even if someone isn't ultimately prosecuted, they may find they're tainted just because this aura of inappropriateness or criminality lingers over them regardless of what the outcome is in the court of law. And the costs that they incur, obviously, representing themselves and not proceeding. Did you do any of these things, any of these things that the women said you did? In regards to being flirtatious? Anything that they said was inappropriate. You know, I'll say this. I was accused of assault, and I was accused of first-degree assault, which is rape. I didn't do any of that. Fitzgibbon now has filed a civil suit against Raddick alleging malicious prosecution and defamation. She declined our request for an interview due to litigation. For more on the people and groups that secretly smear for a living, check out my New York Times bestseller, The Smear, How Shady Political Operatives Control What You See, What You Think, and How You Vote. People who are smeared often have little resources. The smear often works even when it's exposed after the fact as a lie. Well, Fitzgibbon sued the lawyer who falsely accused him and she settled with him and was required to remove certain statements that she'd made about him. Of course, the smear still sticks to him to some degree and may always, which is the nature of the smear. We can become better at recognizing smears and when it's the media going after a whistleblower or a campaign to cancel a famous figure, 
not to counter them with an argument, but to cancel and destroy them, we should always ask the question, who could be going after this person and why? I said in my interview with Trevor Fitzgibbon that I would try to repost at CherylAckison.com the timeline that I built on the Ukraine involvement in the Trump-Russia smear. So you can look for that if you're listening to this. But if you miss it on the homepage, the search bar works pretty well at CherylAckison.com. You can probably put in Ukraine timeline or look at the drop-down menu under my special investigations and keep going down that menu. You should find it there. Also, the collusion against Trump timeline. And I may, just for good measure, put in on the homepage my story on the foreign connection, my full measure story examining Ukraine's and Russia's influence through hiring of foreign agents here in the U.S. to lobby Congress on their issues. So look for all of those either on the search bar or on the homepage. Eyeshadow has come a long way since you swiped on one color at a time or practically had to take a master class in cosmetics to get the shading right. Hi, I'm Star, owner of the Lemonade Mermaid, and I've designed an exclusive shade-shifting multi-chrome pigment for eyes that's like no other you'll ever see. Just swipe it on your eyelids and the magic happens. Depending on the angle and light, it shifts between hues of golden pink or green and pink and even purple and gold. The shading is done for you. Just $25 for a jar that will last you months. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. And listeners of this podcast can get 20% off these incredible pigments by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, you'll leave a great review and share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more original reporting and interviews on off-narrative topics that powerful interests often try to censor. It's never been more important to support independent reporting. You can do that by going to the CherylAckison.com website, click the Store tab, and browse our great products. The most popular new slogan that I have on products there is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All the old ones came true. Proceeds support causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards, giving cash awards recognizing and encouraging independent off-narrative reporting by college students and professionals. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.